Well, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, if you have a Bible. Ephesians chapter 4. We're in a series called One Body. And in this series, uh, we're talking about the church. And the reason that we're doing this series is because right now, in the life of our church, it would be easy for us to be divided. It would be very easy for us to be divided. Um, We are a church that was two churches, and we have come together as one church. And we have a lot of differences. We have differences in the ways that we do music, the way that we would decorate stuff, the way that we would, you know, do prayer chains and all kinds of stuff. All right, we got all kinds of differences. And it would be easy for us to be divided. In fact, most of the time when churches try what we're trying, it fails. And so we've got an uphill battle. And so if we are going to take the hill together, um, we're going to need to be together in this. So it would be easy for us to be divided. So this is a series about being together, being one body. It's also um, in our country right now, it would, it's easy to be divided. Our country is divided right now as we enter this election cycle. 2020 is going to be crazy. If you thought 2016 was bad, 2020 is going to be crazy. And so as the church, we have an opportunity to model for the country, what it looks like for people who are different to be together as one. And so we want to get that right. And so that's why we're doing this series is because God has called the church to something unique. God has called the church to be good news for all people, to bring good news to all people. And part of how we do that is we learn to be a light to people. We learn to get along. Last week, we saw that God's plan for the church, his goal for the church, is to display God's glory to all creation. And so that's what we're trying to do, and that's what we're talking about in this series. So this is a series about the church, and it's a series about how to be that kind of church, a church that's one and a church that brings good news to all people. So Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be for this whole series. The reason that we are walking through one chapter is because we want to be a church that primarily just preaches the Bible. And so that's why we're doing this. Um, And so we'll get there in just a second, Steve. If you can, um, I'm sorry. Ephesians chapter four is where we're going to be. There are three things that we're going to see in Ephesians chapter four. The first is unity. The second is diversity. We'll talk about that next week. And then the third is maturity. We'll talk about that in two weeks. So today unity. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6 is what we're looking at today. We're going to read the whole thing and then we'll talk about it. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So today we're going to talk about unity and we're going to talk about three things that we learn about unity from this text. Now we're ready, Steve. The church's unity is rooted in God. 
It's attained in the gospel. And it's experienced by walking in grace. The church's unity is rooted in God. It's attained in the gospel. And it's experienced by walking in grace. So first, the church's unity is rooted in God. Now notice that there's something interesting that happens here in verse 4, 5, and 6. Paul says that there is one spirit in verse 4. In verse 5, he says there's one Lord, and that refers to Jesus. I'll show you why in a minute. And he says that there's one God and Father of all. So in this little text, in these three verses, you have what Christians call the Trinity on display. And here's why this is so important. Because the concept of unity, it didn't originate with a coach or with a nation or with a philosopher or with a social activist. The concept of unity originates in God himself. Before the Romans came along and said, e pluribus unum, God was many and one. So the idea of unity finds its root in the character of God. We call this the Trinity. And there are three affirmations that we make in the Trinity. When Christians talk about the Trinity, if you've never heard what the Trinity is, it just is the idea that there is one God. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each of those persons is truly God. That's what the Trinity means. There's one God. God is three persons. And each of those persons is truly God. That's the Trinity. And the fact that Christians believe in a triune God or a God who is three in one, the fact that Christians believe that has significant implications for you. Now, typically when we talk about the Trinity, that's just like this heady thing that you try to wrap your mind around and you don't think about what difference that might actually make in life. But the fact that God is a Trinity is super important. Let me give you two reasons why, two implications of the fact that God is three in one. First, this means that love really is the center of the universe. Now, think about this. Before there was anything, there was a family who was loving one another. Before anything material existed, there was a family who was loving one another. See, if God, and St. Augustine talks about this, if, if God was not triune, then that means that love would have been a choice. That until God created, it would have been impossible to love because love is something that you share between persons. It's not something you can do alone. And so if God was just one, if he wasn't three in one, then love would have been a choice, which would conceivably mean that maybe God could choose not to love anymore. But instead, Christians believe that God is love. In his very being, he is love. Because from before he made anything, he was already in relationship with himself. Now, again, that is a mind-blowing thing to wrap your head around. But love really is the center 
of the universe if God is triune. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that the joy you've experienced before, either over an excitement around a first date, the joy that you've experienced before, even as you, if you think back to being a kid and having a sleepover, the joy that you've experienced going out and having dinner with a close group of friends, the joy that you've experienced by meeting your kid or your grandkid or your great-grandkid, the joy that you experience in a relationship, the reason that that is such a real thing to your heart is because it is real. It's not just a chemical firing off in your brain. Instead, it's really the center of the fabric of all things because God is the one who's holding all things together and God is love because God has always existed in relationship. So the joy that you've experienced, that stuff is real. And the pain that you've experienced over a breakup or a divorce or a death, that pain is real too. It's not just something you need to get over. It's real. Because at the center of existence is a perfectly united relationship in God himself. So love really is the center, which means that the feelings you've experienced, both positive and painful, are real. Because God is love and God is united. Here's the other thing that the Trinity teaches us, that the fact that God is one. Here's the other thing. Is that unity amongst diversity is not only possible, but it's real. The idea of those who are different being able to be together as one is not only an idea that's possible, it is a reality in God himself. That unity amongst diversity is real. And here's why that's so important. Is what we're after here as we talk about unity What we're after is not uniformity. It's not everybody has to become the same. It's not everybody has to like the same stuff or everybody has to be the same. That's uniformity. Unity is the idea that even as we're different, we are one. That's unity. And the reason that that is possible for us to pursue is because unity amongst diversity is a reality in God himself. At the center of the universe, there are these three persons who are one, and each person is truly God. So, the church's unity is rooted in God himself. The church's unity is rooted in God himself. So if you're not a Christian, and you're here this morning. Here's a question that I think you should think about. If you don't believe in a triune God, how would you explain your pursuit of a loving, united society? What would be your, the reason you would give for why that's something that you think should be pursued? Where do you think that desire comes from that's inside of you that wants a united nation, a united society, 
a loving society. Where does that desire come from? Could it be that you are made in the likeness of a God who is love and is united? And if you're a Christian this morning, unity is not just an idea that we are to pursue. It's a reality that we are to embody because our God is one. So, first, unity is rooted in God. The church's unity is rooted in God. Here's the second thing. How do we attain that unity? If it's rooted in God, how do we attain it? How do we become one? And the answer is, the church's unity is attained in the gospel. Um, Friday night, Courtney and I watched the Democratic debate. Um, and some of you may have watched that. And it was fascinating because everyone was calling for, we've got to be united as a party so that we can beat President Trump. That was like the mantra. Is, we've got to get on the same page. We've got to be one. We've got to be one. We've got to figure this out. We've got to be one so that we can be a party that brings the nation together. So that was the mantra. We've got to be one. We've got to be united. But here's what's interesting about the church is the church's unity is not attained in rallies or speeches or sermons or small groups or Bible studies or gospel communities or mission trips or mission projects or social justice. The church does not attain our unity through rallying for things. Instead, the church attains our unity through the gospel, through the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. That's how we attain our unity. Here's what I mean by that. What is the gospel? When we say gospel, that it's attained in the gospel, what are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that you and I were designed by God to be one. We were designed to be in relationship with him, in a close relationship with him. We were designed to be in close relationship with other people. We were designed to be in close relationship even with nature. So there was supposed to be this union that we experience with God, with ourselves, and with creation. And instead of experiencing that, we experience separation, division, divisiveness. And why? Certainly because of the decisions of others. <laughs> totally. But also because of our own decisions. You've been responsible before for creating division in a relationship. You've been responsible for letting people down. You've been responsible for embarrassing yourself. You've been responsible for creating separation, division. And you can experience that division in your relationship with people, but that should be a clue to you and to me that sin or doing things that are not right, that that is something that divides us entirely. It divides us from God. It separates us from God. Our sin separates us from each other, and it also separates us from creation, from nature, so that there are problems in the world like natural disasters and hurricanes and allergies. There are problems. That's not the way that it's supposed to be. We are supposed to be one with that stuff, and instead we're divided. That's the bad news. 
We were made to be one with things and instead we are separated from things. But here's the good news of Jesus, that Jesus has come to the earth. God has sent him, his son, Jesus, to the earth to unite all things. Listen to Ephesians chapter one, verses seven through 10. You can look at this, just a page over. In him, we have redemption through his blood. This is in Jesus. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his, that's God the Father's grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Listen to this, verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Do you know what Jesus wants to do in the world? He wants to unite everything just as God intended for it to be from the beginning. And the way that he goes about uniting it is he goes to the cross and he dies in your place and in mine. The reason that he has to do that is because we deserve to pay for our sins. We have created division and we owe a debt to get back into union with God. And Jesus goes to the cross to pay our debt, to bring us back, to reconcile us to God. First Peter 3, 18 says, Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What is he doing? He's uniting us to God. And Jesus doesn't just unite us to the Father by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead and ascending to be with him. He doesn't just unite us to the Father, but he also unites us to each other. He makes us all one. So the gospel is how we attain unity. Do you ever wonder why you feel such guilt over your sins? Do you ever wonder why you feel that? Could it be because you're separated from the God who made you? And could your guilt be a way of letting your soul know that there is something you were made for that you're not going to have on your own? Could your guilt be a way of pointing you back to your heavenly father who has sent Jesus to die in your place to redeem you and forgive you? So how does the gospel make us one? Well, look at what he says in verse four. He says, there is one body. There's one body. What is he referring to? He's referring to the church. How do we know that? Because look at Ephesians chapter one, verse 22 and 23. He says, and he put all things under his feet, that's Jesus, and gave him his head over all things for, all things to the church. Verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So when he says we're one body, he's saying, he's referring to the church. The church is one body. First Peter chapter two, verses nine through 10 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now notice that. He's saying this to people who will read this who are of all different types of races. Who are all different types of ethnicities. And he's saying, 
But in Jesus, you're one race. In Jesus, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So when Jesus dies on the cross and is raised from the dead, he is not just doing that to save you as an individual or me as an individual. He is doing that to save a people, to bring a people together. And so he saves us as one body, as one group. Then he says in verse four, there's one body and one spirit. And one spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. And what, why is he saying that there's one spirit? Because do you know how you gain access to the gospel? Do you know how you are made alive and brought into fellowship with God? So Jesus died for you, yes. But how do you get access to what Jesus did for you? It's through the Holy Spirit. Look at Ephesians 2, 18. It says, For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you know what the Holy Spirit's job is? He does a few things. But one of the things that he does is he unites us to God. He applies what Jesus has done so that we can be made one with God. And then the other thing that he does is he unites us to other people. So we're brought into this one body through the one spirit. So there's one body and there's one spirit. Verse four, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So as a Christian, there's one body the church, there's one spirit that brings us into this body and there's one hope. In other words, we're all hoping for the same thing in the church, in the body. We're all hoping for the same thing. What are we hoping for? We are hoping for deliverance from sin, deliverance from death and decay, deliverance from judgment, and entrance into glory. That's what we're hoping for. We're hoping for the escape of sin. Are you tired of having the same problems over and over and over? Are you tired of you tried to be nice this time and you still opened your mouth and said something mean? Are you tired of being like, you know, lazy? Like I said I was going to do that yesterday and we've been saying that for the last six weeks and we just haven't done it yet. Are you tired of that? Are you tired of looking at porn even when you know that it's horrible and you're like, God, forgive me for this? Are you tired of struggling with that? Are you tired of sin? The hope that we have is that Jesus will return and free us from that. That's our hope. We're also hoping that Jesus will return and free us from death and decay. Are you tired of not being able to walk like you used to walk? Are you tired of not being able to do the things you used to do because your back is sore? Are you tired that you, of not being able to remember things you used to be able to remember? Listen, all of that is because of sin in the world. Sin creates division. It's dividing you. It's cutting you 
Jesus will return someday and set everything right. Unite all things. Bring you back together. He'll literally piece even you back together. That's our hope. Dude, even your friend Jesse is going to be restored when Jesus returns. And so that is our hope, that we have the hope of escaping sin and escaping this death and decay that's happening in the world. That's our hope. And we have hope that we will escape God's judgment on sin. Listen, because God created the world to be good and it was good when he made it, he will intervene someday, once and for all, to destroy sin. And that would be bad news for you if it wasn't for Jesus. That would be bad news for you if it wasn't for Jesus. But in Jesus, we have the hope of salvation even through judgment. And what we're hoping for is not just to escape, but to live in a glorious way. In the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead in a glorious body, that is our hope. So, there is one body. We get into that body through one spirit and we are called to this one hope. Then he says, verse five, one Lord. Now this is referring to Jesus. Um, Jesus is called Lord in uh, verse, chapter one, verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, uh, several other times uh, throughout Ephesians, uh, Lord refers to Jesus. So he's saying there is one Lord, one master, one king, and it's not Caesar. Now in their culture, that was like, whoa, there's only one Lord? Can't there be two? Can't Caesar be Lord and we just follow Jesus? Why do we have to put him against each other? But there's one Lord. There is one King. There is one that we bow our knee to. Now, should we submit to the government? Yes, he says that in Romans 13. But there is only one that we bow to. There is only one that we obey without conditions. And that is Jesus. And the reason is because of the kind of Lord that he is. He's not a Lord that lords his authority over us like the Gentiles do. Instead, he's a Lord who has come to serve us because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus does with his authority. He uses it to serve us. And so in return, we serve him. So there is one Lord. This is also significant because Jesus makes an exclusive claim here that he is the one Lord who deserves allegiance. He's the one Lord who can save you. He's it. That sounds exclusive, and it is. He's the only way to be saved. But as a savior, he's the most inclusive. Because while he is exclusive about the fact that he's the only savior, he is all inclusive about who he'll save. All can come. He says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. He has come to save all. He's given his life as a ransom for all, First Timothy chapter 2 says. So he's exclusive as a savior, yes, but he's inclusive to who he'll save. 
He'll save anybody. That means you. Despite your past, despite your failures, despite your embarrassments and your shame. To the guilty who have nowhere else to go, Jesus says, come to me. That's right. Like Matthew, chapter 11. Way to go. So there is one Lord, Jesus. Then he says, there is one faith. One faith. Now the word faith there is referring to the message that we believe, the gospel. There is one message that we believe, and that is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The way that he does that is he goes to the cross and he dies and he's raised from the dead. He ascends to be with the Father and someday he'll return to judge the living and the dead. That's the message that we believe. There's one faith. Then he says, and there's one baptism. There's one baptism. Now, baptism is a sign, a sign. The Bible uses the word sign to refer to something visible that communicates something invisible. Something visible that communicates something invisible. So a ring, for example, is a sign. This is something visible, but by seeing it, you know something else about me that you can't see. That's a sign. And baptism is a sign. It's something visible that shows something invisible. And so baptism represents the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of our faith. Here's how. When somebody is put under the water, water is washing them. And just like how water cleanses things, so Jesus cleanses us of our sins. And when somebody goes under the water and is brought out of the water, it's also a picture of our union with Jesus, of us being one with Jesus. Jesus was buried after he died, and Jesus was raised. And so when we do that same act in the water, we're showing that we're connected with him, that in the same way that he died, so we die. In the same way that he will live, so we live. So baptism is a picture of the gospel. And so if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, but you've never been baptized, obey Jesus today. Jesus says, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you are a follower of Jesus, but you've never been baptized, obey Jesus today. That's intended to be the first step of obedience, and it's the easiest. (laughs) You're going to have to do a lot of other steps of obedience later that are going to be much harder than choosing to be baptized. So obey Jesus and be baptized. We'd love to talk with you about that. So there's one baptism And then verse six, he says, one God and father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. So how do we attain this unity? It's through the gospel. It's through this message that we believe. And he listed seven things that are only become true for us in the gospel. There's one body, the church. There's one spirit. There's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God. Those are all things that we proclaim in the gospel. And so in the gospel, we attain unity. 
Here's what this means for you. In a world divided, the church can be united because Jesus unites all things. In a world that's divided, we can be united because Jesus has made us one. This means if you're a Democrat or a Republican, you can be one in the church. If you're rich or poor, you can be one. If you're black or white, you can be one. If you're old or young, you can be one. If you're educated or uneducated, you can be one. If you're a man or a woman, you can be one. If you're American or international, you can be one in the church because that's what the gospel does. On any wall that divides us, Jesus is a door. Jesus has come to unite all things. And he's accomplished that unity on the cross. So throughout history, God has been working to unite all things in Jesus. And the church is where that plan will be be made known to all creation. That's why we looked at that verse last week in chapter 3 that says, God has done all of this stuff in Jesus so that his wisdom, his manifold wisdom can be made known to the heavenly places. This is one of the reasons that being part of a local church is so significant. Um, I read this this week, and I want to share this quote with you from uh, a pastor named Dallas Goebel. He's talking about reading Ephesians, and he says, Now, my understanding of church membership begins with the vast plan of God to create and redeem a people for himself before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, who being reconciled to God are now reconciled to one another, Ephesians 2, to display the wisdom of God to all creation, Ephesians 3, and by living and growing together in unity, Ephesians 4, displaying an ethic of sacrificial love modeled after Jesus himself and guided by the Spirit, that's what Ephesians 5 is about, as we wage war against the devil and persevere until the end through prayer, Ephesians 6. He's saying, Do you see what the church is? It's not just something you attend on Sunday. The church is this united people of God that God has been forming from before the world began, that he intended to perform. And he's brought us together. He's reconciled us not just to himself, but to one another so that we might display his glory to all creation, so that we can walk in unity, so that we can walk in sacrificial love by the power of the Spirit. And so we can literally attack the demonic powers in the world. Ephesians chapter 6. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And he says, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, I've always read that until I started thinking about this. I've always read that as like a defensive thing. Like, the, the gates of Hades are gonna, you know, I, I don't know, like, they were on the attack somehow. But it's the gates won't stand against it. That means we are the ones who are on the attack. We are the ones who are on the offensive. The church is not the one whose gates won't fall. Satan's are those whose gates won't fall. And the reason is because Jesus is uniting all things. And that's what the church is called to be a part of is pushing back the darkness and even the gates of hell will not prevail against that. And that's what we're called to. So how do we experience that kind of unity? 
So that unity is a reality because that's who God is. It's rooted in God himself. And it's already been attained for us in the gospel. We are one in Jesus. That's a fact. But how do we experience that unity? And the answer is by walking in grace. By walking in grace. Look at what he says in verse 1, chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So he's called us to this grand vision to push back the dark, to proclaim his glory to all creation, to be one. He's called us to that. And how do we walk in that? Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, you want to experience unity? You want to feel it? You've got to walk in grace. Walking in grace means walking in humility. Humility means lowliness of mind, not thinking too highly of yourself. It's the opposite of being haughty or thinking that in your own eyes, man, I'm great. Do you think you're great? Now, sure, you're great at some things. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about gifting, right? But does your gifting go to your head? Do you think that you're more important than other people? Good. Listen, we can all, we can all fall into that at times. But if we're going to experience unity, then we've got to humble ourselves. We have to consider the interests of others ahead of our own. We have to have the attitude of Christ. He says, gentleness. Yeah. Gentleness could be translated courteous, considerate. It's willing to waive one's rights for the sake of others. That's what it means to be gentle here, to be courteous and considerate. He says, with patience. The word patience here means to have a long temper, to make allowance for others' shortcomings. It means to have tolerance for annoying behaviors. That's what patience is. Then the next thing he says is related to that. He says, bearing with one another in love. So here he's amplifying patience. We accept people in their weakness. We allow them to have worth and space with us. Now listen, here's why this is super, super important. Listen, last week we had a challenge that everybody would spend more time with each other. And I don't know if you did that or not. You don't have to turn in your homework or anything, but... um, but I hope you did, and I hope that we continue to do that. And we've still got the questions up here at the table, so you can come get those if you need to. But here's the deal. As you spend time with people, people will get on your nerves. People will hurt you. People will let you down. People will misunderstand you. So 
the idea of being with people, that sounds great until you're with people. <laughs> uh, Pastor Curtis Gilbert at The Journey, he says this, do you love the idea of the church or do you love the church? You don't really love the church until you get around people who annoy you and choose to love them. So do you love the idea of the church? Do you love the idea of unity? Do you love the idea of this community? Oh, the community, community. Do you love the idea of that? Or do you love the reality of that? Because the reality is messy. The reality is carrying burdens. The reality is being patient. The reality is having to be humble. Even when you feel misunderstood or you feel offended. The reality is being courteous in that. And listen, I have failed at that today. I failed at that today in this building. So this is not easy and this is not the pastor getting on to the crowd. This is all of us as one body recognizing that we are called to this glorious calling. And that requires humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And then he says, we've got to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now notice we're maintaining it. We're not developing it because it's already true in Jesus. Listen, if we want to be a united church, the first thing we've got to do is preach the gospel. The first thing we've got to do is unite around the gospel, be together for the gospel. That's the first thing we have to do. That's why, you didn't know we were doing this at the time, but in the month of November, we preached that series called Good News for All People, where we just walked through Romans. The reason we did that is because I knew we want to come together. But if we're going to come together, we don't just talk about unity. We talk about the gospel. The gospel is what brings us together. That's where our, our unity is attained. And so if we're going to be a church that is united, we need to be passionate about the good news. And if we're passionate about the good news of Jesus, we can get over some other stuff. We can get over, <laughs> I won't name names, all right, uh, of things, not people, but of things, all right? We can get over some of the small things if we're all together in the gospel. And so we've got to be eager to maintain the unity that we have in the Spirit, in the bond of peace. Now, do you know who our bond of peace is? It's not like this ethereal idea, like the bond of peace. It's Jesus. Look at Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus is our peace. So by being one in the bond of peace, that's Jesus. We stick together in the gospel. That's what we do. So how do we maintain our unity? We walk in grace. That is hard. It sounds good until you have to do it, but we've got to be eager to do it, eager to maintain that unity, eager to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. So let's review the church's unity is rooted in God. He is three in one. It's attained in the gospel and it's experienced by walking in grace. Can you imagine what would happen if churches got this right? Can you imagine what would happen if churches got this right? The night that Jesus was arrested, just hours before, 
he was arrested and then eventually tried and executed. He's praying to his heavenly father. And you know what he prays? First, he prays for his disciples. He asks that they would be one, that they would be protected. And then he prays for all of those who would believe because of their message. And that means you. Jesus prayed for you the night before he was arrested. And you know what he prayed for you? We read it earlier to start the service. Listen to it. John chapter 17. This will be on the screen for you. I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Think about that. We are here in St. Louis, Missouri, on the other side of the world from the Middle East, believing a message because of these men's word. That's amazing. And here's what he's praying for them. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why does he want us to be one? Because unity is our greatest witness to the world. Unity is our greatest witness to the world. Do you want people to take Jesus seriously? Do you want people to take you seriously when you talk about Jesus? Then we've got to be one. And what an opportunity we have in 2020 to be one. Let's pray. Father, thank you that what you were praying, you accomplished on the cross. You tore down any wall that divides us to build a door. So God, now I I lift up those in the room who maybe don't know you. Maybe they're still separated from you because of their sin. God, would you convict them now through your spirit? Would they see the foolishness of their ways and would they turn and see the beauty of of your son, Jesus? Would what he did on the cross be applied to their heart now by the power of your Holy Spirit? And would they be raised from the dead spiritually this morning just as Jesus was raised from the dead physically? God, I also pray for our church. God, there are so many things that could divide us. But would we be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Would we be eager to maintain that? As we come to the table now, God, would this be a picture to us all that we are not just reconciled to the Father, to you, but we are reconciled to one another. So would we be a community that acknowledges when we're in the wrong, that confesses our sins to one another, that restores relationships here 
that are broken. Would you give us strength as we try to do that? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.